yeah, goal setting is so important. Where you want to be, how are you going to get there? What's your plan? If it don't work out, how can you change that plan to get there? So yeah, we, we teach all the kids right from the age of three, three years old, they're taught how to set goals. Welcome to a new episode of Most Memorable Journeys. Today's guest is not normally somebody that I would have on my podcast because I'm not really that much into martial arts, but I met him on a global woman meeting. And when this guy started talking about how he actually started doing his, uh, his creating his empire, literally, I thought there is a story in there that I want to know more about. My guest today is Matt Fittis, and he's one of the most respected martial art um, experts in the world. He has built a global fitness empire with over 700 schools in the UK and worldwide. And I also um, studied him a bit. And it's not just martial art, it's Pilates and dance as well. So um, it's more my kind of thing. Welcome to Most Memorable Journeys, Matt Fittis. Thanks for having me on. Um, so I was listening to, because I, you probably, maybe, I don't know if you remember, but I I immediately asked you after the presentation if you would be my guest, because the one thing that really impressed me was you went to San Francisco when you were how old? Yeah, like 17, yeah. And you went alone? Yeah, I, I was working as a lifeguard for £2.75 an hour, and I was teaching martial arts for £3 a session. So I saved up enough money to get a ticket to go to a business like convention, a huge business convention, over a thousand martial arts entrepreneurs there. Yeah, they were impressed because in America it's, it's very different to the UK. When you're trying to be successful, they they pat you on the back and they want to help you. In the UK, it's, when you make it, they kind of try and bring you down. You know, it's it's interesting. But no, so the owner, the person who ran that conference, he took me under his wing and he was so impressed with my ambition. And he said, uh, you know, follow me around and I'll mentor you and take notes, take you back to England. And if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. It, so it was like martial arts business had not been done before in the UK. I was one of the first out of three or four people to bring that concept from America. But you had no business knowledge. You hadn't done any business school or anything. I've read a lot of books. I, I used to read three to four books now it's more audible now, so you know, put the headphones on and so on. But three to four non-fiction books ever since I was like 13, 14. So all the usual ones like uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Tony Robbins, Unleashed the Power Within. That was probably the first book I read, I think, non-fiction-wise. Anything around making money and PR and publicity. So, yeah, I had no qualifications or nothing. I did my best at school, but it wasn't for me. I mean, I... That was it. And my, on my mum's side, everyone's very academic. She's one of 14 children. She was a solicitor or attorney, depending on where you're watching this from, listening to this. And my dad's side is more like get a trade. He was an engineer. And that went right back to my great, great, great granddad. So I was kind of breaking the mold because they expected me to go to university and be a vet or a lawyer or something. But I just, yeah, it wasn't for me. I just knew from the age of like 13, I just wanted to teach martial arts, turn my passion into my profession. That is exactly what we, should, we should all should do. We should make our passion our profession. But um, coming back to the, there, you said a lot now in the last uh, in the last phrase, like the one thing that I want to just pick on is 
the school curriculum in general, and you have children now who go who go through this, should be changed. They should teach children emotional intelligence. They should teach them how they feel. They should teach them how to how to balance a checkbook or what I don't know what you know this kind of thing. Instead of teaching them things that they will never ever need. Well, it's interesting. I'm just pulling my kids out of school. They're going to be home educated because the stuff they're taught at school they're never going to use in their life. And um, we had a parents' evening recently where you go and see the teacher and they give you a report on how your child's doing. And my nine-year-old boy, Zach, was very nervous because he knew that there was going to be a problem there. So he sat down with a teacher and they said, Zach's handwriting is too small. It needs to be bigger. And he can't do his times tables calculations fast enough on this screen that they press and they go for it. So I said to the school teacher, well, I can solve that problem for you straight away. Let's let, let's bear in mind he's nine. So everyone uses keyboards right now and voice detectors. He won't ever have to write a letter. I don't have to write. I can't write, which is another story. I can write to myself, but I can't. You won't be able to read my handwriting. I've just had to sign and sign autographs most of my life. I, that's it, literally it. When Zach's 18, who knows what the technology is going to be then? So give him a keyboard. And then that solves the handwriting problem. And for the times tables, why on earth aren't you giving them a calculator? They're even on mobile phones nowadays. They're everywhere. By the time he's 18, who knows what they're going to be? And she got all funny with me and so on. And, but when you look at it, school teachers are, are just on the breadline of living and surviving. They're not paid much. So you've got broke people, effectively, who are having to slave nine to five for, for money teaching our children how to become stably financially free that isn't going to happen you've got broke people it doesn't work the school system's messed up some my children come back and they've they've drawn dinosaurs and and stuff like that and they're not using calculators they're not being taught about investing about mortgages good debt bad debt and things like that nutritional decisions that they could make at such a young age which could impact their adult they're not, that's all been ignored it's just I had a teacher here and basically when I looked into it the actual curriculum they've got to learn can be done an hour and a half per day four days a week but it's because they have to buffer it up with activities so that people are enabled them to go to work it's like a babysitting service so they said to me Matt if we actually stripped away all the nonsense like the drawing dinosaurs and all this type of stuff um, painting pointless pictures then you know mums and dads won't be able to work so it's a system there. And I, I don't think they want you to know how to be financially free because they want you to pay tax. And employees pay the most tax. They pay tax on the on the top and NI and pension contributions. And then you live off what's left. When you're an entrepreneur, you you, you live first and pay your tax on what's left. So it's the other way around. So they want to breed employees. And so, yeah, I, I don't want my children to be part of that system. And that's my mission in life is to teach people to become entrepreneurs and and break out of that cycle. And imagine what it does to a little boy of nine being afraid that when his father goes to see the teacher because of handwriting and because of times table, which is nobody cares anymore. I mean, you do that. Nobody cares. We have the artificial intelligence. Did you ask the teacher if she's ever, he or she ever heard of it? Well, I once, um, I had a client, their child was going to a business, to get a business degree. And the lecturer, the educator, the teacher, I said to them, just ask the question to the business lecturer who's going to be teaching you for the next five or six years to this business degree. 
have they ever owned a business before? And they looked at me kind of strange, thinking, well, they must have done. But they asked the question, no, the person's never owned a business before. I mean, how ridiculous is that? That's like having your children taught how to swim by a swimming instructor who can't swim. It's madness. And unfortunately, that's the world we live in now. But yeah, for my boy, he knows I didn't do well at school. He lives in an incredible house. He knows what daddy does and so on. And for him, it's uh, it's all a bit confusing because he's, I, I can have my child to draw dinosaurs and make play funny games from nine till three thirty, or I can have him come along to me where I'm having meetings about buying my next properties and viewing houses and showing how many stack up and what you've got to look out for growing assets. That is where I need my children to be not amongst being bullied and being taught pointless things where teachers are telling kids off and they can't control them. And now I won't get onto the subject too much, but now they're bringing in this whole, don't call my child a, a boy or a girl. It's a, that's starting to happen and I'm not having my child any part of that nonsense it's just, but we're pulling them out yeah I know that's another story that's uh, as you say we better don't go into this but um, you know I, I totally absolutely agree with you however not everybody is in the position you are you see not everybody is awakened enough and I funny enough um, you were you mentioned Tony Robbins before I was bullied at school and I was when I was 29 I was in Florida and I found a book called the power of your subconscious mind I started the same way and I started reading books and I actually attended an um Tony Robbins public speaking seminar in 1989 in California by by pure chance I was a tour guide and I was staying in a hotel and I was bored and I just saw this in the ballroom and I bought the book I think it was Awakened the Giant Within or something and I still look at that book every year and it totally completely changed my life. That was the second book I bought at least Power Power Within then and then Awaken the Jar. I mean, T- Tony Robbins was the pioneer in the whole personal development world. Him and Yuri Geller. Yuri went more along the psychic route, mind power type, positive thinking, whereas Tony focused on the firewalk. Yuri did spoon bending, all that stuff. He did the firewalk and was the first to really get out there and do it in a massive way. I've got a lot of respect for Tony Robbins. I think if it weren't for him, a lot of us would be where we are now. Yeah, and it's a lot of... Um it's practical. Tony Robbins gives a lot of, you know, it's it's for everybody. Everybody can understand what he says. He says it in a very, very straightforward, blunt way. And I love that, you know, because um, when you sometimes listen to people and you listen to them for 10 minutes and you have no idea what they are talking about at the end, that's not what he does. He really gets to the point and that's a good thing. But this is all getting very confusing. I want to start differently, Matt. You have confused me now. I, you went to California. Was that the first time you were on a plane? Um, I've been on a plane one time before with my girlfriend. We went to a holiday in Corfu in Greece. And that was my second time on the plane. Yeah. So yeah. you went to California and then you came back and you came back with all those notes that you had. Yeah. And oh. you just started off. How did it go? Not everything worked. So the high fives and the hugs didn't go down very well with the UK people, but the Americans do. But um I turned it into an educational establishment. So rather than breaking boards and doing press-ups and getting kicked in the belly and punishing people, I made the martial arts a hook to teach all the stuff that's not taught in schools, goal-setting, respect, discipline, persistence, consistency. And the kids had homework books and so on they had to go back with and, and goal sheets. 
They had lists that their parents had to monitor to make sure they brush their teeth, tidy their bedrooms up. They're being respectful at school. And if that wasn't signed by the school teacher and by the parent, then the child couldn't progress to the next kind of grade. So it went remarkably well because I took the people from paying £3 a class. And it's quite funny. I used to collect it like an ice cream container, one of those big ones, you know, go to the bank with it. And I was one of the first to put people on basically direct debits, standing orders. It hadn't been done before. It was a complete mind shift for the industry. And I got a lot of hate for it too, because when you're the lead dog, you take all the forms. And I was the first guy to really disrupt the whole martial arts sector in a big, big way. You had to put up with the haters. To Back then, it was like more forums and gossip and so on, because social media was so big. But um, yeah, that was the hardest part. But it, it just propelled. I just followed the system of what they were doing in America. I put my own little twist on it. I didn't expect any of the students to do something that I couldn't do. And I made sure I represented the young man, what what the parents want their children to become, you know, the beyond person, sorry, because I was only 18, 17, 18. So I made sure I was polite, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, and respectful. I was in shape. I could do everything. And because of that, it just went mad. I worked like 700 men, members within six months, making £80,000 a month and a um, million pound a year profit. And I was so young, you know, it was just, uh, yeah. And I, for me, it was, I kind of thought it was a little bit of luck at first. I thought, and then my parents started to think, you know, he might be onto something here because I was living in a bed sit, like £35 a week, and we were going to get evicted. I couldn't afford to pay it. And, um, it was humiliating. I had to turn the, the bed into a sofa every day and then back. It was a little tiny space, a little kitchenette. We just couldn't afford to live like that. And in Christmas time, people sent us food hampers. And I thought, well, you know, can, is this going to carry on? So I tried it in another town and it worked. So I, I did it five times. And and then I thought, that was enough, really. I've done time I was, yeah. I mean, at 18 years old, I had all those locations, those five places in North Devon. And I, I didn't really have to work anymore. I owned my own home at 18. And, uh, yeah, I was made. But you were made, but you liked what you were doing. You had, there was no reason for it because people who like what they do, they don't stop doing it. But that's when they, they only just got started. Yeah, it, it was never work to me. It was, uh, it never, it's not now. I just love doing stuff like this. I love, uh, it's fun. Well, when you love what you do, it's not work. Um, but in my mindset that a the nearest town away from, it's quite a secluded area in North Devon is. So I had Barnstable, Biddeford, Ilfacombe, South Moulton, Torrington. The next town was about 40 miles away. And I just didn't have the mindset to think that I could open, I could get some of the travel there. I could make that happen. So I thought that was my, I was done, basically. I, that, that was it. I, I, I had instructors who worked for me. And that was odd because, you know, you imagine having a 35-year-old instructor working for an 18-year-old. It's, it's, <laughs> it works out okay. It was fine. And, uh, yeah, and then things got crazy from there on. Yeah, but the thing is, I don't know what you were like when you were young, but, you know, the one thing I have with what, what I do and Global Woman and all this stuff, I have come across a lot of people who have done similar things like you have, who have started with difficulties and then made it but you are a very very approachable nice man and if you were that at the age of 18 19 surely it it was easy to work for you even if you were older because I believe that that's one thing that uh, also sort of bothers me in today's world is that youth is so important and I believe that 
young people and old people can live and work together very well if they respect each other and learn, are willing to learn from each other. Yeah, you, you have to. You have to be. I was always very humble about everything because I wasn't taking it all for granted. I thought it was going to stop at any minute or I was going to die young or something like that. It's too good to be true, you know. But it will become, the next chapter, it all becomes the people you mix around with and the people I had hanging around me were a higher level and they were very humble, very nice, and that rubs off on you when you're a teenager, you know. So although I was basically a millionaire, I I really didn't mix with people my own age. They were out going clubbing and chasing girls and getting drunk. I didn't have my first alcoholic drink until I was 27. So it was a very different life, but I wouldn't change it, but it, it certainly wasn't normal for a teenage young adulthood, that's for sure. Who was the first like celebrity or famous person that you started mixing with? So the the first one was, um, do you remember the TV show Gladiators? Yeah. Yeah, in the UK it was big. It's just coming back actually. And and at the time I was involved with a few of the Gladiators there. So we had one of the Gladiators come down. It was a big Saturday night prime primetime TV show, Cobra, they called, it, called him, Mick Wilson. And he helped me launch one of my locations for me because he was very famous back then. And then um, what happened next is that a journalist came into my martial arts school in Barnstable, North Devon, and he, he worked out, he knew my story. I was bullied at school, no qualifications. He did some figures. He realized I was making a lot of money. And he said, do you mind if I do a story on you and take some pictures of you and put it in the local, I thought it was the local papers. I said, sure, no problem. So we did that. Took some pictures of me in my car. He interviewed me. He went off, didn't think much of it. Two days later, he was on the front page of every single national newspaper in England. Bully Boy becomes millionaire. And he had a picture of me where I was like the little delicate seven-year-old, vulnerable seven-year-old to me where I am now doing a martial arts in my sports car and so on. That went wild. And back then, newspapers were a big thing. You know, it was it would rattle. You'd know it. And on the back of that, the TV producers go through them and they pick stories. So they they wanted me on the TV shows. Back then, it was the morning TV shows, Esther Ramson, Kilroy, um, GMTV, and Richard and Judy, and so on. So I did all the TV shows. And just by chance, uh, Yuri Geller, who's world famous, depending on where your country, what he's famous for, but he's world famous. He lives in Israel now. He used to live in England. He spotted me and he told his people he would like to meet me. So he wanted to, his, his idea for me to meet, he wanted to um, have a video where he did like positive mind power for children not to be bullied, a VHS video, and I would do the self-defense element of it. So his people approached me. I went to his house. He's got this incredible mansion in Sonnenland Thames near Reading. and. Um, yeah, it just it's like a replica of the White House, a twenty million pound home, unbelievable, next to George Clooney's home now and things. Mm. Yeah, and that was the start of the next chapter of something big. So Yuri saw the potential of me, took me under his wing as well. He was very into property, so he pushed me to invest my money into property. I hated him for it. I love him for it now. And he was like, you, you can achieve anything you want. He's such a positive person. He's not, he doesn't live far away from you, does he? He's in this yeah. route. Yes, I only know, to be honest, I only know Yuri Geller because of the 
fork bending, but I never really realized that he was, obviously there must be something with the mind. Yeah, he's got big books out, Mind Medicine, and my, yeah, he does these big events, stadium events and TV shows around the world. I think he's got 50 published books internationally in different languages. So, yeah, so his, his big time was in the 70s and 80s, so I understand. But we became very, very close friends, and we ended up doing a fitness video together, actually, in the end, where he did the Mind Power, and I did, like, kickboxing aerobics. And um, I didn't realize what would happen next was was quite, at the time, it seemed relatively normal. Now, when I look back now, I know it was probably one of the craziest things on earth, but he called me at three in the morning. So we didn't have regularly use mobile phones back then. It was pages. So he called my landline at home and he said, you've got to come to my house now. If you don't come, you'll regret it for the rest of your life. And I can't tell you why. But come now. And I was like, Yuri, it's like three in the morning. I won't get you to 6 30. So you got a Ferrari. Stop moaning. Love you. Bye. Put the phone down on me. And um, that was a difficult conversation to have with my partner. That, well, I was going to Yuri's house, but I don't know why. And I get to his house about 6 30 in the morning, go down the driveway, and there's nothing really to give away anything. But I go into his living room, and this, this frail man walks up to me and introduces himself, says, Hi, I'm Michael Jackson. Nice to meet you, Master Finesse. I mean, I know who you are, but what the heck are you doing here? What's what's going on? I thought it was like a prank TV show or something, you know? But it turned out they were best friends. Michael Jackson was best man at Yuri Geller's wedding. And, and we just hit it off. Me and Michael hit it off. He he wanted uh, to, he was already a black belt. Joseph Jackson made all the Jackson 5 training in Kung Fu. And he wanted to go for his second degree black belt. And it's very hard for him to do. He can't just rock up at a class and, and do that. So, and also Yuri knew I was financially free. I didn't need anything of Michael. So, and his security was a bit of a mess at the time. So we became close friends and we hung out with each other. Then over time, I ended up taking over his security element as his personal bodyguard. And some of my family did too, and people who worked for me. And then he became a close friend of mine right until he passed away. This is unbelievable. I mean, just a story, first of all, when, you know, if somebody comes you go into somebody's house at six o'clock in the morning and then this man walks up to you and says, I'm Michael Shock, Michael Jackson. You'd be like, this is a joke. But you obviously wasn't and he obviously looked like him. So that's one thing. But the other thing is, what was he like? Because, I mean, there's so many stories and, and so many misconceptions and so much because I believe that he was a kind soul. Oh, he's a lovely man. I mean, I think he had such a good influence on me because he was so humble and so nice and lovely to everyone. And that was probably his biggest weakness too because he would get taken advantage of. I, I did a documentary on, on Amazon Prime called Chase the Truth, Michael Jackson Chase the Truth, where me and his inner circle of friends actually tell you the truth about him because he's, he's still now in death, 14 years on. He is the most famous man in the world. And I think he'll never be another Mike. He'll always be the genius that he was, but he is a lovely, kindest, very intellectual, very clever. You don't get to be a superstar on his level with the biggest album in the world without being a genius. He would read constantly. We'd go to bookshops and he would buy every book because um, once he gets recognized, his shopping experience is over. So he would just sell, take it all. I've been with him many times where he's done that, send it all to Neverland all non-fiction books. He would study all the greats and then learn from them. And he taught me how to franchise, basically. So when he heard out the story that I've got five schools, martial arts schools, and I can't take it any further, he said, sure you can. It's called franchising. And I immediately said to Michael that 
never been done in martial arts before. And he said, that's exactly why you've got to do it, Matt. And he mapped out on a napkin at the Renaissance Hotel in London in 2002 exactly how to franchise. Because he's done licensed this brand many times before. He's got the biggest deal for Pepsi-Cola and so on. And he, yeah, he introduced me to his franchise lawyer. He kept me accountable. So every time we had a, he used to call me or I used to call him, it would be, how many schools have you opened and how many students have you got? Keep growing, keep growing. The most ambitious man I've ever met. Unbelievably ambitious. But yeah, lovely guy. Absolutely. All the nonsense about him. It's just the bigger the star, the bigger the target. I mean, I know for sure because I was the man who was with him sharing the rooms and he was into women. But when you join in Motown at five years old, they train you to understand that if you're ever seen with a woman, then you're going to lose half your fan base. Mm. So girlfriends and the media know about all this, but they don't want to print it. It goes against the narrative. I mean, I've, I had a well-known publication call me once when this stupid documentary came out three or four years ago. And I said, why don't you speak to his girlfriend? She's published a book. It's all the evidence there, pictures, the lot. She goes, well, we know about her, but it goes against the narratives. You know, and that, that program that went out, which was about four hours long, it was those guys lost their case against the estate and the judge basically said it's fiction. They were claiming to be abused in the building at Neverland that wasn't even built and given planning permission until they were in their like, late 20s. It was complete nonsense. So, yeah, I, I see that a lot. You know, the, the bigger you get, the more you're going to get trolls and haters and people bring you down. You can't get bigger than Michael Jackson. And it, it, was, it was horrible seeing him go through the things he had to go through. Just, but, yeah, he was an absolutely lovely soul, amazing man. Did he allow people to take advantage of him? He's paranoid. Michael was very paranoid. I mean, he was, uh, yeah, it, it, no, he, he was ruthless and making sure that that wouldn't happen. But I remember one time, even with, with me, we were in a car. I was in a car driving to see him and public knew he were there. They're outside the hotel. And I had a phone call from a reporter and they said, if you get us a picture of his children, we'll give you a million pounds. And I said, I'd, don't be ridiculous. I'd never do that to Michael. And thank you very much. And they were very persistent on the phone. Then when I get into the hotel, me and Michael go to a function, to a, to a book launch. And in the car, he said, um, hey, Matt, have you heard any calls recently? Strange. I said, do you know what, Michael? I had a call this morning from a person trying to get a picture of Prince and Paris, his children. And they offered me a million pounds. Can you believe it? He goes, I know you did, because that was me. He put on a voice. He was testing my loyalty. Joking. He was testing my loyalty. Yeah. Oh my God. Well, you passed the test. Yeah, yeah this is definitely a very, very inspiring and interesting friendship that you had, and um, also probably taught you a lot. But coming back to, I want to go back to Yuri Geller. Yuri Geller was a lot older than you, or he is a lot older than you. Yuri's. I'm 43. Yuri's 76 now. He doesn't look yeah. in way. He keeps himself in shape and so on. Yeah, he was like a, a father figure to me. I, I known, I've known Yuri more than my own dad, you know, and yeah, I looked up to him. He, he was incredible to me. He, he really was. He just took me under his wing like one of his children and he, he just knew I had it in me. He, and there was none of this nonsense about qualifications. It was all about believing yourself, no such word as can. You can do this. He trusted me with his friends like Michael Jackson and Mohammed Al-Fayed who owned Harrods and Ritz Hotel in Paris and 
yeah, I was hanging around with his inner circle. But no, I owe a lot to Yuri Geller, absolutely. And I hope to get out to Israel soon. He's got the Yuri Geller Museum now in Israel. So we could we could go together when you're here next. Uh, yeah, over there. Um, yeah, no, I mean it's a literally it's a 25, it's a 30 minutes flight from Cyprus, Tel Aviv, very near. So let's go back to traveling because after all, it's the this is a, a travel podcast, or a, you know, I talk to people about their life journey and their travel journey. But you travel for work and you travel for fun. Where where is your favorite place in the world? I, I don't mind. I can be anywhere in my world as long as I've got my wife and my kids. I don't really care to be honest. I'm quite, I'm a bit, yeah, like material things. When you can buy anything, you don't really. I have the urge to do anything. So I've had all the Ferraris and all the rest of it and so on. And actually, I just bought a Lamborghini, but I only did that because my wife's nagging me. You never spend any money on yourself. You're always helping others. And so I just bought a Lamborghini, which is arriving in the next few days. But even then, I I don't know. I, 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 like, to, I like to be with my children and um, travel. My favorite place is definitely, without doubt, the Maldives. Oh. I love that. Yeah, absolutely. I know you. I know that you've got a privilege to be able to afford to go there, but... But what an amazing paradise. Because you look at brochures for holidays sometimes, and it's happened a lot to me. And you get there, and it looks nothing like the pictures. Whereas Maldives, it really does. You're flying over, and you can't believe what you're seeing. And it's that's my favorite place. And then other than that, where you live, Cyprus, I was going to move out yeah. there in 2020. So. I was sent to the Maldives to work when I was 25. And uh, I had never been overseas before. I had never been... Um, out of Europe, I had been working in Cyprus and Greece and Tunisia, and uh, I, I I looked out as you say I looked out of the plane window and I saw this, you see these little sandbanks and islands come up, and you think, yeah. oh my god, this is like, is, am I am I dead? You know, <laughs> it's unbelievable and it's very beautiful. I have to tell you though that I got very 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 bored because I was there for five months, living on an island where you can walk around in ten minutes. But I learned how to dive. I learned I was sailing and and windsurfing. I used to windsurf from one island to the other, but it is a bit boring, especially in the days without social media. They had better signal in the Maldives than I had at home, right in the middle of the Indian Ocean. Um, but yeah, I was there for a week. I think any longer than that might be tough. <laughs> yes. You had bad weather; it'd be awful, I'd imagine. But um, yeah, yeah. I remember staff there and they live there all year round it's fascinating they're completely shut off from the outside world they're not interested in all the stresses that everyone else see on the news they've got none of that they don't really know what's going on and it's quite interesting to see um, how they live but now that's my favorite play I love it out there fascinating place very fascinating and very very beautiful and somebody really wants to relax that's the place to go to yeah. Now we're coming to the end already, but I want some more um, tips from you because you've mentioned a few things that um, stuck to my mind. And for the people who are listening to this podcast, like you were saying that, um, I don't remember who, but you were teaching people when you started, you, you were teaching young people to set goals. Mm. How important is it to set goals and what is the best way to set goals? It's massively important. I mean, would you anybody listening to this get on an aeroplane unless the pilot knew exactly where he was going and had a clear plan to get there? Or would you get on an aeroplane when the pilot says, I'll try and work out how to get there? You wouldn't get on that plane, would you? So it's amazing to me. Like Tony Robbins always say, people plan their holidays more than they do their lives. So true. And I think you, um, yeah, goal setting is so important. Where you want to be, how are you going to get there? 
what's your plan? If it don't work out, how can you change that plan to get there? So yeah, we, we teach all the kids right from the age of three, three years old, they're taught how to set goals and get out there and have it. But you need to have a clear plan of where you want to be and how you're going to get there. You're not just going to arrive at a destination. And there will be challenges along the way and issues, but you just got to overcome them and understand that's normal. Yeah, they're very, very important. Yeah, I think this is definitely one thing. And the other thing that you were just saying now, when it doesn't work out, when things don't go the way you were planning them to go, you just have to start again. Yeah, you got to start with the end in mind. Stephen Covey used to, I can't remember the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Successful People. Um, and then you measure your success. So when a plane takes off, it goes off course a lot of the way and the pilot has to bring it back on. And that's how it's like going after your goals. You you need to always re relook at that. Like, are you on track? What do you need to train? What do you need to change? What do you need to pull back? And then you'll get there in the end. So you need to have a clear path. And to make your goals easy too, look for somebody who's already done what you want to do and try and imitate that, model it. And um, you'll cut a lot of time off. You you will save a lot of the mistakes that you make. Like people from like Sue study me, learn from my mistakes. What I've achieved in 27 years, you may be better doing it in five years because you'll cut out all the, all the nonsense and all the testing that we've had to do. Yeah, this is so true. And this is also something that I always taught my kids. Ask, because if you don't ask, you have a 100% chance of a no. But if you ask, you have a 50% chance of a yes. And people like you who are successful, I have noticed people who are really successful, they love to share. They are not, they, they, they take the time to tell you how they did it. And that can help a lot. As you say, 27 years of experience packed in a, in a short time. You know, have you ever written, have you written any books yet? It's always been difficult. I've been offered many, many book deals, as you can imagine, but it's always been, they want dirt on Michael Jackson and there is no dirt. And uh, I would never talk, a book about my life is fine and having a few chapters about my life with him, but not a book about my friend. It's, that's never going to happen. But I am, at the moment, we're, we're writing a book currently, um, starting Monday, funny enough, and that is going to be the first chapter of my life, meeting Michael, being bullied at school, setting up my martial arts empire, my property portfolio and so on, meeting Yuri Geller and things. So, yeah, we're in the process of doing that, but I'm in full control of this one. It's not down to a publisher. So we've been offered crazy money for books in the past, but I'm not interested in um, selling out my mates. So this one will be about personal development, my life, and lessons that people can take away. And and go off and, and do well. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. So are we. And um, I, I'll anyway, I'll be posting the website, your website in the show notes, and people will be able to see that later on when it's coming up. And we are coming to the end, Matt. You and I are going to meet soon. Yeah, I'm coming to Cyprus. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. And I didn't know. So this recording is now done, which is fine. But maybe we will release it together because I've got a couple pre-recorded. So when you are here, we'll, uh, we'll upload it. And uh, I really want to thank you, first of all, for being so approachable, for being so kind and for taking the time to talk to me. You're welcome. Anytime. If you enjoy my podcast, please like, share and subscribe to my channel. You will find all the information in the show notes.